This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. One of the challenges for an effective nonprofit leader right now is getting the right information so you can make solid financial decisions to help your organization thrive. To do this, you need the best accounting and donation software. Researching, learning, and maintaining software can get really costly. So let me save you some time and money. Applos just might be the solution you're looking for. Go to nonprofit.applos.com to see how it works and get your 15-day free trial. Now, on to the show. Well, there is no doubt that nonprofit leaders are facing a whole myriad of challenges right now. I mean, not only does starting, operating, and sustaining a nonprofit require leaders to be knowledgeable, dedicated, and mission-focused, but leaders today are facing immense financial challenges and a downward trend in charitable giving across our country, and this was happening before COVID hit. So I wonder, should nonprofits fundamentally change the way we're doing fundraising? Why are donors giving less to nonprofits these days? Do nonprofits need to retool their structure from the inside out? Well, these and other questions are answered by my guest today, who is David O'Brien. David O'Brien, along with co-author Matthew Craig, have a new book out entitled Building Smart Nonprofits, A Roadmap for Mission Success. You'll be sharing some insights from his book that will help nonprofit leaders not only survive this challenging environment, but hopefully thrive. Enjoy today's show. Well, David, it's great to have you on the show today. You have a new book out with co-author Matthew Craig entitled Building Smart Nonprofits, A Roadmap for Mission Success. You know, there's no doubt that starting, operating, and sustaining a nonprofit organization requires leaders to be knowledgeable and dedicated to achieving results. Uh, Now, with this new book that spells out how nonprofit leaders specifically can do this effectively, I'm curious, I wanted to start by asking you, why is it so important in your opinion, that nonprofit leaders are dedicated to achieving results. And what does that look like day in and day out? Well, they're they're dedicated to achieving results because, frankly, that's what they are. That's who they are, um, and it's in their DNA. The reason they work for the nonprofit sector in the first place is not to go out and make tons of money. They want to help to improve our society and make life better for a lot of people. So that's in their DNA. The problem is, until now, they couldn't really prove what they were doing was effective. They couldn't prove the, the efficacy of what they're doing. But that is changing very, very dramatically. Now, let me give you an example of what we found uh, in, when we uh, did our interviews. You're probably too young to remember this, um, but I wonder if you remember the show, The X-Files. Maybe you watched it when you were a kid. I do remember them. Yeah, sure. Great. Okay. Well, you had two detectives. Um, one was Mulder. Mulder believed, he wanted to believe unswervingly that aliens exist, despite the lack of any evidence, and he couldn't convince them otherwise. Scully, on the other hand, was skeptical about whether there are visitors from other planets, unless there were sightings supported by scientific data. But just as the name of the tagline movie says, the truth is out there, and timely and and, um, actionable data of impact exists, and nonprofits and their funders are increasingly going after this, and these funders are willing to pay for it. Now, let me give you an example of how this is working, what we found. 
Uh, we call this evaluation hacks. Um, the old way, uh, when you're trying to evaluate efficacy, uh, you were dealing with such things as randomized controlled trials, double-blind studies. They took a long time. They're costly, and they're out of date by the time they're actually published. The new methods are really the old, the old acronym KISS. Don't try to measure everything. Select a few relevant things that are indicative of what your mission is and lend themselves to both quantifying, proving that uh, what you're doing is effective, and storytelling, and measure them. Uh, I guess some people told us, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Rather than wasting valuable time and resources trying to capture the perfect data, just pick a metric or two that actually showcases your organization's effectiveness and, and go with it. I want to give you two examples of, of what we found um, why this is important. We looked at two anti-recidivism programs, uh, you know, keeping inmates uh, from going back to prison. And there are two sides of the spectrum. One was an organization called ROCA, R-O-C-A. It's in Boston. It was the largest pay-for-success transaction that's been done so far in this country. It's a $30 million transaction. And if you're familiar with these, what happens is the investors put in money and they get paid back by a funder, typically a nonprofit, when efficacy has been proven. Um, in this particular case, the, the repayment criteria was based on a randomized control uh, trial, which took two years. And that was a $30 million transaction, so frankly, um, you, know, you can afford to put some money and time into it. The other example is uh, a program that was called The Last Mile in San Francisco, and it was an $800,000 transaction funding an operation inside San Quentin where inmates were going to learn how to code and computer skills. Um, and they boiled down the, the repayment criteria, in other words, what proves that the program was effective, based upon the number of hours the inmates attended classes. So that's what we call an evaluation hack. They boiled down the criteria in very, very simple, measurable criteria, which prove that that the uh, program was effective. So those are some of the things that are changing in today's market as these new new uh, methods and and the use of technology. Technology is so prevalent today. We looked at one operation that that measured their success by going to their the people they were working with Facebook pages after they graduated from the program to find out where they went in life. So a lot of technology there. So the world's changing, and uh, we believe it's going to be to everyone's benefit. Now, it's really interesting. And, you know, in your book, you argue that it's time to take a hard look at the nonprofit sector and specifically that it may be time to completely restructure some nonprofits, perhaps reduce the overall number of nonprofits and seriously consider increasing the pay rate for nonprofit staff. Additionally, I mentioned in a previous podcast that today's donors are certainly demanding even greater accountability and evidence of mission impact. So my question to you is, is it time to come up with a whole new way of structuring nonprofits? And if so, what should they look like? Well, you know, frankly, yes, it is, uh, but it's happening already, and it's happening very quickly. You know, let's look at a couple major trends. There was an article in Fortune magazine a few years back talking about the development of what's called the fourth sector, the blending of government, private, and nonprofit sectors into a fourth sector, which essentially is mix, mix and match of different structures, different legal structures, different methodologies, different ways of funding, all to tackle, uh, you know, problems that exist in our society. Um, another example is the rise of social entrepreneurship. Um, you know, the 
our universities and colleges are just um, pushing out tremendous numbers of young people who, uh, unlike some of us uh, when I was that age, uh, were interested, really interested in helping to, to solve um, society's problems, but also using uh, the what we learned in the dot-com era about how entrepreneurship can can exist and help to provide uh, solutions to these societies. As I mentioned, use of hybrid structures like partnerships, joint ventures, uh, certified B corporations uh, are really, really helping to change the landscape. The creation of what's called virtuous ecosystems, where nonprofits band together, all working for a common goal to solve a common problem, like homelessness, uh, where each, each member of the group brings their special sauce, their special know-how to solve one aspect of the problem, but these are swampy problems and take a, a lot of different approaches um, to, to make, it, make a change. Um, let me give you an example. There's an operation we looked at called Work Now in Denver. It was started with a $1 million grant seed capital from the Denver Foundation. Today, it's a self-funding operation. Uh, and it comprised of 20 nonprofits which, and government groups which pulled together to help to assist in solving homelessness and poverty in Denver. And that may sound like an anachronism because Denver at the time probably still is booming. But what happened is a lot of people were falling through the cracks. And at the same time, they had a building boom, and they needed hands-on people, people who with skilled trades. So they put together a group of these 20 organizations which gave the ability to handle all the needs of these young people to train them for careers, get them housing, get them, uh, if they needed daycare, find them daycare, if they need transportation, find them transportation, train them in jobs. And I think over the course of the year, they produced 200 uh, people, put them in jobs, which were paying three times the minimum wage. So it's these types of activities where they're banding together, everybody doing what they do best, which basically provides better return on the resources, uh, and this has been proven to be much more effective. Um, funders, what we found, are increasingly willing to fund collaborations, mergers, uh, partnerships, and in some cases, in many cases, even making grants for nonprofits to explore these different collaborations. So collaboration is a major change in what's happening in, in the world of nonprofits. You know, that's really interesting you mentioned that. And, you know, sometimes in these conversations, I've heard many people say possibly nonprofits ought to be run more like businesses. And maybe that's the answer. Talk about that a little bit. Do you think that nonprofits should be more run like businesses? Is that part of the solution? Well, you hit on two major, most important pieces of advice that we received and uh, covers both of them before we started writing the book. One was, don't be like the business suits who think they have all the answers because they come out of business and can tell nonprofits how to fix themselves. Um, the second is, we don't want to hear about what you have to say. Let's go out and find out what people who are in the trenches, in the field, have to say about the nonprofit world and how they can achieve greater sustainability. Now, so that's what led us to go out and do interviews with 60 nonprofit leaders uh, thought leaders, people working for nonprofits, people who, who provide services to nonprofits to determine what they thought. And I can just give you a couple thoughts of what we heard, which I think answered that. The, that kind of concept about uh, nonprofits should be more like businesses is really a almost a hot button 
uh, with nonprofits, and, and rightly so. Jim Collins wrote in the Good to Great, in Good to Great in the Social Sectors, we must, and I'm quoting, we must reject the idea, well-intentioned, but dead wrong, that the primary path to greatness in the social sectors is to become, quote, more like a business. Phil Buchanan, who was the president of the Center for Effective Philanthropy in Boston, who we interviewed, uh, and he writes very extensively in this specific topic, he basically said, you know, nonprofits are unique in many respects, including incentive for growth and scaling, sources of funding, and responsibility to society at large rather than shareholders. Thus, they are and should be governed by different standards, practices, and, and mores than for-profit businesses. And finally, Jonathan Greenblatt, who was the uh, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, told us, Remember, part of the reason why these nonprofits exist is to fill the gaps between business and government. So you don't want them necessarily running at the same pace as the private sector. We don't want them subject to the pressures put upon the financial markets. So, as you can see, um, my answer to that question is no. That doesn't mean they can't use business practices and have efficient um, systems. But, uh, no, we don't want them modeling themselves after the for-profit uh, for profit section. I'm excited that Aplos is our featured sponsor for the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. More than 40,000 nonprofit organizations already trust Aplos to manage finances, people, and giving efforts. It's time to empower your nonprofit with better accounting, stewardship, and financial reporting. Go to nonprofit.aplos.com to see how it works and get your free trial. Hey everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to make sure you knew about how to get some more great content. When you go to our website, just look at the top right section of the homepage under the words subscribe. You can simply type in your email address and then you will be added to our monthly email update. In addition to getting great access to some superb content, you will get the latest podcast shows right to your inbox. Now, this way you'll never miss any of the interviews or content on this show. If you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email us. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. When it comes to funding, you point out in your book that charitable giving actually is down and it has a downward trajectory. If you look at it over the last couple of years, the trend line is not showing signs of improvement either anytime soon. And sadly, I would say in light of COVID-19, for some nonprofits, the giving has really dropped. Now for humanitarian nonprofits and those who are responding to COVID-19, I think it's actually just the opposite, ironically. But overall, trending for charity giving has dropped. As a result, do you think it's time for nonprofits to completely retool their funding strategy? Why don't you talk about that a little bit from your research? Well, clearly they are. And I would say that several of the aspects that are driving this is the rise of a new a tsunami of capital that is coming to the nonprofit sector. And that's basically the, the significant amount of money that is flowing in to the nonprofit sector from folks who want to earn a double return on their capital. By double return, what do I mean by that? I mean 
they want to earn an interest rate or return on their capital, but they also want to see a social return on their capital. And that's having a tremendous, tremendous effect on what's happening in the world and, and the funding models of nonprofits. Because there is enormous, enormous amount of capital that's flowing into this. Something like one-third of investing in this country is made with a concept of a social goal. Um, now, that can be very widespread in people who let's say, don't want to put oil companies in their portfolio. Or it can be um, people who, who invest in so-called impact financings, impact financings, which uh, we spoke about this before, where they're putting money into, into an investment, uh, which is money they're putting at risk, which will be paid back by philanthropists when and if uh, the intervention is shown to be effective. Now, the problem with this is there's so many different terms that are used. It's it's hard to to put a, uh, to you know you can get t- tied up in terminology. There are items like you know, sometimes it's called ESG, environmental, social, or governance investing, or it could be responsible investing, uh, SRI, socially responsible investing, thematic investing. So there are many different terms. But it represents $8.7 trillion in the United States today and $23 trillion globally. So what would happen if, as an example, today, U.S. charitable giving is, uh, in 2017, was something like the range of 400 to $500 billion. If 1% of the portfolio's investors was directed to nonprofits, by these new financial instruments, that would be $1 trillion a year. The other factor is the old, what they call the starvation cycle of grant making. You're familiar with the overhead myth, I suspect, uh, and that's... Yeah. yeah. Okay, so in the overhead myth, and, and uh, basically where philanthropists, uh, people were making grants, uh, looked at uh, all of our money, would say we own all of our money and most of our money going directly to programs, and we're not going to cover the cost of overhead and infrastructure and so forth. And that set up what's called the starvation cycle of grant making. That's now being, it's really dying. It's being replaced by new methods of grant making. Sometimes these are called capacity grants. Uh, another term that's used is trust-based philanthropy. And trust-based philanthropy essentially is Changing the old rules of used to be called the golden rule, um, those that have the gold rule, uh, where philanthropists would say, well, this is how we want things done. They're now recognizing that uh, they want to be in partnership with on a long-term basis with their grantees, and they basically, as the name implies, trust that the grantees know how to do what they do effectively. Uh, so it's much more of a partnership arrangement, uh, and what that means is they are making long-term grants uh, to build capacity so that they can see a return and leverage their investments as those those uh, grantees become financially sustainable. Um, so it's having a major, major impact on the funding arrangements. 
in addition to the fundraising challenges, just in general that nonprofits face, sustainability in general is still something that really can be elusive for a lot of nonprofits, more than I think most people realize. Uh, in fact, I just want to share for my listeners a few data points from your book. Your research indicates that 7 to 8% of all current nonprofits are technically insolvent, like right now. This is before COVID. Uh, and 30% of nonprofits have lost money over the last three years. And then 50%, half of all nonprofits, have less than one month of operation reserves, which is, that's kind of scary, to be honest with you. So also to note, these stats don't just apply to small nonprofits. I think you make that point in your book that this applies to nonprofits of all sizes. So in other words, just because you're a larger nonprofit, it doesn't mean that you're immune from these challenges, particularly when it comes to fundraising. So in light of that, what's your advice to the nonprofit leaders that are listening to this show? Hopefully, we have a lot of advice in the books, but I'll pull up some that I think are most important. The first is take a really hard look at your funding model. Now, I'm using the words funding model as differentiated from a business model. What's the difference? In the business world, for-profit world, an entity, the business, creates a product which is then paid for by the end user, the person who buys the product. That's not the case in many cases with the nonprofit model where the people who are paying for the, the services of the product are not the end user. So there's a funding model, not a business model. There's a great article I would point to by William Foster, who was a senior partner at Bridgespan, who we interviewed. Uh, he pointed out that this, this difference of between the business and funding model is a major differentiation between the sectors. And his point was you need to look at what your particular uh, funding model can be that would provide recurring, long-term recurring revenue. Um, he calls this meeting uh, money meeting mission. Now, one way to do this that we found a number of very, very successful nonprofits are able to do is they find a way to determine what their intellectual property is, and they provide examples. Uh, they provide uh, basically funding models in order to monetize an intellectual property. Now, I know it sounds strange in some cases. We think of intellectual property as, uh, you know, computer programming and, and dots and dashes and, and new gene splicing, but most nonprofits have very significant amounts of intellectual property. Intellectual property is know-how, how to do things. And those that have been able to monetize that have been able to build very, very substantial, strong, and recurring funding models. I'll give you just, you know, one example, one or two examples. There's an operation here in San Diego called AVID, which was started by a high school history teacher uh, with $5,000 20 years ago. Uh, and what it did is prepared students, most of them were free lunch, to, uh, in a college preparatory program. Uh, and they had about, oh, 90% of their students who went through the program uh, went on to, to college and graduate college. Um, and the founder, Mary Catherine Swanson, told me, you know, we could not run this program based upon living from grant to grant. We had to find a way to find long-term recurring sources of revenue. And what she did is she took that intellectual property, that know-how, and convinced the state of California to write it into the budget as funding, as a line item funding for professional development. Well, today, AVID is in oh, I guess, 45 states, 14 countries, has millions of students, uh, and, has been, and has its own foundation, by the way, to fund other nonprofits. Why? Because they're able to monetize that intellectual property. 
No, a really good point about the board, you know, and I think, you know, we've talked a lot about the challenges, you know, that are facing the nonprofit sector for sure. I wonder, you know, for the listeners again, to kind of turn a little bit, you know, you and I were chatting a bit before the show that there's a lot of things that are giving you hope right now. And, and particularly as we do this recording, we're still in the midst of COVID-19 and the crisis and, and responding to that. And a lot of nonprofits are finding themselves in a difficult situation responding to that effectively. What gives you hope today that nonprofits can not only survive today's challenges, but actually thrive? Well, you know, Rob, I, I must tell you, uh, when I, we started writing this book, I had a bit of a bias. Uh, we re- wrote it primarily because we were trying to help nonprofits, and we're and saw a lot of frustration uh, with nonprofits not having the resources, not being able to buy the right equipment, paying people adequate salaries, and so forth. I can tell you, uh, having done the research, and that took one year, we came away with a tremendous sense of confidence and excitement for the sector. Because of all the things we just discussed, new methods of financing, major new sources of capital, new uh, relationships with funders. So I can tell you that all those, I, I come, came away with the conclusion of, wow, this is a great time. Holding COVID aside for a moment, this is a great time to be a nonprofit. I almost wish I was starting over and just starting out because it's so exciting. The blending of the sectors uh, and the new attitudes on the part of lenders, uh, funders, uh, people who young people who are working for nonprofits is truly, truly exciting. So I have a lot of confidence, and I I finished this book with a tremendous amount of confidence for the sector in the future. As regards COVID, I'll tell you, um, you know, like Ron Emanuel, the uh, Barack Obama's uh, chief of staff said, never waste a good crisis. We see nonprofits who are doing a tremendous amount of work now, even though they have reduced staffs, looking at Everything they're doing, rethinking all their processes, rethinking their models, their funding models, their services, and so forth, and also developing, and I just wrote an article on the subject called All Hands on Deck, developing a culture where everybody in, on, in the organization has to jump in and pitch in to, to attack the major, major problems. I use the analogy of people, if you're on a sailboat, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, you're 30 miles offshore, the skipper yells out, all hands on deck when the squall comes up, and everybody jumps up on deck and and does what they have to do to keep the ship afloat. But that group, when they get back to port, they generally are a great team. They have a great sense of team, very similar to what Peter Senge calls the learning organization. They know they, they know their capabilities, each other's capabilities, and they work together for the common goal. Uh, and I believe a number of nonprofits are going to come out of this, uh, having re-looked at everything they've been doing with some very, very exciting new opportunities and uh, as staffs that work together, together with their boards, as very, very effective teams. Well, that's very encouraging, actually, because I know we've had a lot of guests on the show that have uh, both talked about the challenges and some of the struggles, you know, that some nonprofits are having. I think particularly those that maybe don't have a humanitarian aspect to their nonprofit. They've found that a lot of donors are not giving as much as they used to uh, because they're focused on giving to humanitarian nonprofits. Anyway, uh, good to hear that. And I do think, uh, you know, in a crisis, it certainly causes all of us as nonprofit leaders to just evaluate and analyze where are we and do we need to make changes? This is a great time to make changes if need be. 
So my guest again today is David O'Brien. He, along with co-author Matthew Craig, have written a new book called Building Smart Nonprofits, A Roadmap for Mission Success. So David, for those who are listening, if they want to find out a little bit more about you or more about the book, where could you send them? Well, you can send them to our website, which is buildingsmartnonprofits.org, uh, or you can contact me by email. It's d.obrien at sandiego.edu. That's D-O-B-R-I-E-N uh, at sandiego.edu. And thank you so much for inviting me on your show. Uh, you do great work. Uh, I'm glad to. I hope I can contribute in some small part to it. And thank you again. You bet, David. Thanks so much again. What's unique about Applos is that they are dedicated not only to providing you with the best tools, but also to offering free training from their in-house experts and CPAs. Right now, you can get access to a solid webinar on five essential financial reports for nonprofit leaders. To get access, go to nonprofit.applos.com. Hey, friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.